let's see, the, the Tea Act of 1773 or the Stamp Act of 1765. So about a year and a half ago, I realized rather than having these old books, which are leather-bound with thick college and you know, cotton paper, so rather than having them sitting on the shelf collecting dust, I decided, you know what, I've got to start putting them online. And uh, I've been posting pretty much on a regular basis ever since. And I've got now over 100 posts about Alexander Hamilton. These are all primary sources, and because I'm not a professional historian, you know, I, I studied history in, high, in college, but uh, because I don't have a PhD in history, nor do I think people need a PhD, I use the primary sources with links to what the historians are saying in the actual documents, you know, to tell the story of American history through American laws, which is what I'm doing, using laws as a mirror to tell us uh, what's happened over time in American history. And that's exactly what you guys were talking about in the last hour, right. except the law is the Constitution, which is the mother of all laws. Yes, and we uh, definitely okay. have frayed you, from you, it. You mentioned Hamilton, um, and there's a play that's very popular on Broadway. It's like $750 a ticket. It's Hamilton. <laughs> Andrew Gillum uh, apparently accepted a couple of, or more of these tickets. So uh, wh wh I wonder, how does? are you familiar with that play? Have you seen that play? And how does it reflect on the historical Hamilton, from what you know? Sure. So, by the way, the author of that book, upon which this, and by the way, we, we could talk hours about the Hamilton musical, so I'll be seeing it when it comes to the Broward Center in December. Okay. So, you know, shortly at the end of the month, I'll be seeing it. But uh, what that play has done is, uh, is taken American history and introduced it and reintroduced it to new generations of kids. So, for example, my daughters run around the house singing about the Schuyler sisters. And uh, again, we could spend hours talking about Hamilton, but uh, what, what the, musically what it has done is it has taken rhythm and blues, it's taken rap, it's taken all kinds of music, and then used it as a, what's called a musical rap video or a musical play on Broadway. Uh, with an interesting casting on how, how Lin-Manuel recasted and, uh, the, the actors to play different roles. So uh, it's reintroduced it to American students and to Americans of all generations, and I, I think it's done a wonderful job. And I, I do agree, because he had a Chernow, who was the historian who wrote the biography of Hamilton, right. and also there's a biography of Washington that the Chernow has written. So he was an advisor on the play. So uh, more or less, there's some you know artistic license, but uh, it, it is fairly true and accurate with regard to my understanding of the history so i encourage you guys and a lot of the videos are available online for free on youtube and otherwise so you can listen to the songs if you want to hear a cabinet battle which is a rap battle between jefferson and hamilton about the bank of the united states and the location of where washington dc is going to be built okay. or the capital of, you know, of the country so i encourage everyone to check out hamilton and not, not as a, a plug a shameless plug for the website statutesandstories.com i have about 10 you know blogs or entries that i've put posts about different interesting components of Hamilton that aren't in the play, because the play or the musical can only do so much. Uh, I'll give you an example. So about a month or two ago, I posted on Jay's treaty, and it was so lengthy I had to break it into three parts. But if you think politics is dirty and nasty and, and heated today, wait till you read about 1795 and what was going on with Jay's treaty. Well, I'll tell you, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's something that... Um, oh, Jay, J-A-Y. <laughs> yeah, so... John Jay the first. Supreme Court Justice John Jay, who was one of the founding fathers, and Washington appointed him as Supreme Court Justice. But also, when they were negotiating a treaty with England, uh, Washington, because he had foreign policy experience, appointed the Chief Justice to go negotiate the treaty because he had negotiated the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Sure. And uh, you know, so could you imagine taking a justice of the Supreme Court because they weren't as busy back then right. to go negotiate a treaty? And it was a very controversial treaty. But read all about it uh, if you go to the website statutesandstories.com. I should point out to you, 
that it's all one word, so you spell out statutes, and the people have, a, have an issue spelling it because there are three statutes, three T's in statutes. So it's S T A T U T E S. So statutes, all one word, and spelled out A N D. Stories with an S. Statutesandstories.com, and, and uh, hopefully it's easy enough for people to use. But what it does is it's telling American history with pictures and with uh, links uh, to these laws, including Jay's Treaty. Uh, let me give you another example, if I could. Uh, have you guys ever heard of the Carriage Act of 1794? I have not. No, no. but okay. Go ahead. Look at pictures of the Carriage Act. This is one of the first cases that get argued at the U.S. Supreme Court. And as you mentioned, I'm a lawyer, and I'm not going to tell you what the case was about. But guess who the Attorney General brought in to argue the case before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1794? It had to do with the tax. It was a luxury tax on carriages. One of the ways Hamilton needed to raise money was through tariffs uh, and also the whiskey tax, which I posted about. But he also was, had a tax. And a rebellion broke out. That's right. So you know all about the whiskey tax. So yes. Here was the tax on carriages, luxury carriages. There's a different tax if it's a two-wheel or a four-wheel carriage. And the case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I'm asking you to venture a guess who was brought in by the Attorney General to argue the case at the U.S. Supreme Court. I have no idea. No, I don't know. Okay, so I'm a member of the AHA Society. That's the Alexander Hamilton Appreciation Society. So long story short, Hamilton is brought out of retirement to argue the case at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, All right, well, that, that serves him right. <laughs> well, let me ask you about another statute around that time, 1798, the Alien and Sedition Act. What can you tell okay. us about that? Right, so uh, feel free to go to the website and check it out. That is a very controversial, in fact, I would argue that is one of the most controversial and one of the worst laws ever adopted in American history, and it was actually four separate laws, because right. it's two alien laws and two sedition laws. And you could ask the question, which I won't spend too much time talking about today, but how could the Founding Fathers have made it a crime, which was what the, the Sedition Act did, it made it a crime to criticize the government. Right. How is that possible? And this is in the backdrop, which is, uh, let's see, this is John Adams as the president, and it looks like we're coming pretty close to going to an active war with France, because uh, one of these days you guys can read about it if you're not familiar, the XYZ affair, and uh, there was naval warfare taking place in the Caribbean, so they're worried about uh, active war breaking out with France. And they're worried about uh, sedition, which is challenging or, or criticizing the government. So the, the founding fathers agreed to a law which criminalizes, and you had Republican, and here you could use different terminology, Democrat-Republican, or you could call them the Jefferson-Republican. So the Federalists were in power. This is, as you said, in the 17, late 1790s. Mm -hmm. And the newspaper editors got sent to jail for criticizing the government. And how could the founding fathers, who adopted the First Amendment just uh, less than a decade earlier, so that would have been 1790 or so is when the, yeah. the Bill of Rights is adopted. How could the Founding Fathers have reconciled that with the First Amendment? But you have to go to the website to read all about it. So thankfully, uh, these, these were, were, you know, weren't, weren't renewed and they were repealed. But just goes to show that uh, members of Congress, including the Founding Fathers, can make mistakes. Yes, in other words, the first wart, basically, the wart of Republican democracy. And, and certainly, I think the Founding Fathers did not expect the high level of partisanship that you had in the 1790s. That's right, and it all started, if you wanted to point to a specific point in time, it all started with Hamilton's debt program, and you started seeing the cleavages or the divisions between North and South. For example, Virginia and Madison and Jefferson, they'd paid off the war debts from Virginia, whereas uh, the Northern states had not paid off their war debts. And uh, you know that gets into the great compromise of where you're gonna move the capital, which started in New York City. In right. fact, let me give you, if we wanna talk about debts, 
uh, you know, people don't realize. Where was the U.S. capital during the colonial period after we broke away from England? So when we first had the 13 states as brand new states, where was the, the national capital? And the answer is it moved around. And, you know, and guys, here, I'll give you some trivia. Why did the federal capital have to move around? Well, because... They uh pay their debts. No, I, th- I thought it was because uh, insecurity and inability to get to these places to meet. No. It's... Okay, those, those are all good, if I understood you, those are all good uh, suggestions. <laughs> They're human anyway. <laughs> sure. So the answer that I would give, uh, so and I could give you the names of some of the cities where the moving Congress had to relocate, but the soldiers had been promised, and we could talk about pensions. I heard you mention it earlier. The soldiers had been promised wartime pensions, right. uh, especially those that weren't just in militias, but who were the, the full-time. Right. They served during the war. Uh, they had been promised pensions. Uh, the value of the currency, the not worth a continental, was basically pennies on the dollar. And uh, they were up in what's called almost open revolt, where they were meeting outside of Congress, basically threatening Congress. So they had to pick up and move uh, from one location to another to avoid the disgruntled soldiers. So in other words, it had something to do with well, security, like right. I implied. I just right. didn't know it was yeah, military. They were, they were running <laughs> from their creditors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I worked for a few years near Federal Hall downtown so I, I've I've seen the statute of uh, Washington and all that, and I think that that's that's a good point. What about uh, the first U.S. bank that was chartered by Hamilton? How did he get that through? Okay, so that's a, another good question, and that involves Washington versus Jefferson. I'm sorry, not Washington, but the Hamilton versus Jefferson. And we could spend all day, as far as I'm concerned, talking about Hamilton, but. Um, you know, the conservative, if you will, Jeffersonian Democrat Republicans or the Jeffersonian Republicans did not want to have the authority. They didn't think it was constitutional to create a bank because the Constitution, and this gets into different interpretations and different mm-hmm. schools of thought for interpreting the Constitution. But, uh, you know, Hamilton was a supporter, some people call it the elastic clause or the necessary and proper clause, right. that if you can regulate interstate commerce, if you can collect taxes, Hamilton's view was we need a bank to carry out and effectuate the lending and the restoration of public credit and to payment of the, the pensions, by the way, to these to these uh, soldiers. And by the way, thanks to Hamilton, Jefferson was able in 1803 to do the Louisiana Purchase because right. we were on a stable footing at, by that point. So Jefferson had to thank, although Hamilton already, uh, I forget the date. Well, ha- I think Hamilton No, wait, wait, trying, he's, on, he's no, on to something that's no, very important. But Hamilton was trying to create something like the Bank of England which had been a great aid to the British government in the Napoleonic Wars in raising public credit. That's exactly right. So the Bank of England was established, and I actually know the date for that, so the Bank of England was established in the late 1690s. Right. And because the British had secure credit, they were able to outspend Napoleon and outspend their enemies because creditors were willing to lend to Britain, as opposed to uh, you know some of the other countries that didn't have the ability to raise capital. And that was another one of the problems going into the Constitutional Convention, which is that we had borrowed a lot of money from Britain, from France, to fight the British and from the Danish or the Dutch, sorry, the Dutch, to fight the British. And we were defaulting. We weren't paying back principal or interest on the colonial war debts from the Revolutionary War. So Hamilton and Washington and Madison realized we've got to fix the problem. And uh, I'd love to tell you guys about one of my favorite books by one of my favorite historians, which is called The Quartet. In fact, I'd love to quote you from The Quartet. But again, my, one of my favorite historians is Joseph Ellis. But yep. It's a wonderful story about the second American Revolution, which is when the Constitution went to Philadelphia, you know, the, the delegates, to, uh, to, to draft the uh, Constitution. It was called, it wasn't the first Constitutional Convention, but it was uh, you know, the Constitutional Convention we all know and love in Independence Hall in 1787. But the book, The Quartet, I recommend to anybody if you guys want to talk about it. The first one was in Annapolis, right? 
depends how far you want to go back. But uh, there was the Annapolis, Maine. I'm sorry, Annapolis, Maryland. Right. And this is Hamilton. And we could talk about patience and how you need patience and fortitude to do the, the heavy lifting of doing a constitutional convention. But I would point it back, and you're right, many point to the Annapolis Convention, which was in 1780, uh, 1786. And, and there's a lesson, by the way, from the Annapolis Convention. So only five states showed up. And the, you know, Hamilton had proposed this idea, just to tell you about history and uh, you know, what, what he'd been, he'd been up to. He had proposed back in 17, let me give you the day, Hamilton had proposed in a letter that he wrote to the New York representative to the Continental Congress. So let me get the date straight here. So Hamilton proposes, this is eight years or so before the Constitutional Convention, that he realized the problems, the defects with the Articles of Confederation, that you didn't have a strong enough federal government, it's not paying its debts, it's uh, the states are arguing with each other. Uh, you, you, someone of you men, one of you mentioned the uh, Shays Rebellion and then later the Whiskey Rebellion. So there are all kinds of problems and defects. So what does Ham Hamilton do? He, uh, he sends a letter to the representative uh, from New York, and this is, uh, his last name is, uh, what's the name of uh, Governor Dwayne, Morris? Dwayne Reed. So okay. Dwayne, but he sends a letter, and uh, what he describes is his plan. Now, I just want to read to see if I can find where I wrote it down. Give me a quick second. So what, what does Hamilton propose? And here it is. So he sends a letter to James Dwayne, D-U-A-N-E, on September 3rd, 1780. So this is eight or nine years before we get the federal government set up. And what he's basically saying in the early 1780s, he's saying that we need, this is a quote, we need a convention of all states. Hamilton is saying this in 1780. The states are not fit to govern. The minds of the people ought to be prepared uh, in sensible and popular writings. So he's diagnosing and he's saying, let's do the, we can talk about other things Hamilton did, but the Federalist Papers. He's got these ideas in 1780. He then writes a letter to, uh, at the time, Robert Morris. is The, the, the big financier, Bank of, uh, the Bank of Philadelphia. One of the wealthiest person, one of the wealthiest individuals in all of the country, Robert Morris, who was a treasurer under the Articles. And Hamilton writes him a letter. This is in 1781 about his Hamilton's financial plans. And let me quote you. He says, I wish to see a convention of all the states with full power to alter and amend finally and irrevocably the present futile and senseless confederation. So years before Philadelphia, years before, and this is how you ask the question, years before the Annapolis Convention, Hamilton is proposing convention, but I would bring it back even further. I'd bring it to, to Franklin, and in 1754, Benjamin Franklin, and we, I'd love to talk with you about old Ben, but Ben had proposed a plan during the French and Indian War and that was the Albany plan from 1754, and we could talk about what the delegates at that convention, it was a convention of all the colonies, and not just the, the 13 colonies, but it also included other English colonies, because they were fighting the French and the Indians, and it was a proposal that Franklin had to uh, unite the colonies, and the governor shot it down, and the colonial legislature shot it down, but it was a national congress of colonies proposed by, by Franklin in 1754. Wow, well, uh, there... To roll you back a little bit to Robert Morris, it, it seems that these financial problems is the reason for Robert Morris to reach out to the colonial Cuba at the time to seek funds through uh, uh, Mr. Pollock uh, and fund the, the, the very important battles that, that needed to be fought between 1780 and 81. And it explains why, ultimately, when the dollar was printed in 1850, it was called dollar, dollar, 
which mimicked the eight ocho reales of Spain. Do you have you ever come up with any kind of information? The connection between Cuba funding the uh, Battle of Yorktown, well, not Cuba, but Spain. Well, well when I say Cuba. when I say Cuba, it's the only way for us to explain the story because it's colonial Cuba that had a huge reserve of uh, reales, which are the Spanish silver dollars, and they were minted in uh, Peru and, and Mexico. Is there any truth? Uh, or a, 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 basically, if I can encourage you to study it, because I'm sure you'd you'd have you'd be able to connect the dots as uh, better than I could. It seems that when Robert Morris and Alexander Hamilton are having these communications, and the federal government not being solid enough to raise uh, public dollars for just about anything, and then the states not being valuable, and it, it solidifies the story that I have studied about colonial Cuba funding and securing the Mississippi River and controlling the battles of the Mississippi Delta to use it as a supply uh, route to fund the infantry and uh, basically uh, uh, soldiers' pay uh, funded by the Cuban dollar. And it, it's it's funny how the, uh, the American dollar uh, is called dollar, which is... Um, the basically the lexicon of the uh, ocho reales of Sp of Spain in Cuba. Do you have any? Did that ever come up in those writings with uh, Robert Morris? Because Robert is the one, Mr. Morris is the one who actually made the communique, uh, basically asking for huge loans. And uh, Robert is it, uh, Robert Pollock, or is it an, um, the gentleman who was put in a Cuban jail? Uh, who collateralized his own personal wealth to get these loans for what ultimately became the f the funding for the Battle of Yorktown? I'm going to answer you indirectly, and I'm going to apologize for my answer. But first, you've piqued my interest, so I have to do some research on the Cuba connection. But what I have written about, if you go to the website, mm. statutesandstories.com, is the Coinage Act of 1792, which established the Mint. And, of course... Hamilton was the Secretary of Treasury, and he was the one behind that Coinage Act of 1792. And you are absolutely right that the Spanish mill dollar, or dollar, and I don't I want to try to pronounce Spanish because I would, uh, would be in Dollar, dollar. Dollar. So uh, long story short, the Spanish dollar was the legal tender, and it wasn't just the Spanish dollar, uh, but, and the older gold coins from Britain, Great Britain, Portugal, Spain, and France were all legal tender for a couple of years until we got our mint up and running. And they used the, because it was so prevalent, the Spanish had the, the money from, from South America, had the gold, I should say, or at least for a period of time, well, had the gold. The well, the purity. Silver, the, purity. Right. the silver dollar was minted in Mexico. And that was the standard in the U.S. Well, apparently the uh, the value of the ocho reales, which is also what it's called, you'll see the dollar sign on its tail, uh, the tail of that coin. You'll see two columns wrapped in, in reefs, and you can see how organically, uh, when you would uh, uh, describe the accounting ledgers on ship manifests going to the old world from the new world, you can see how that, that symbol came to be, which is the two columns and the S's that we've known you know, at one time when we were kids, you know, the columns were two columns and the S. Now it's just one column with the S, I guess, because of the computer age. But you can see how these things metamorph into this reality. Uh, the Ocho Reales de España, the, the, it was so pure that what people liked about it is that when they were traveling long distances, the coins wouldn't stick together in saddlebags on the side of very warm horses. So, yeah. you know, you wouldn't well, have a problem well, creating change. Well, well minted in uh, Mexico, in Zacatecas, and San Luis Potosí. Yeah, yeah it's uh, and Mexico City had apparently 
uh, 10 times the population of the 13 colonies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, uh, th th that's... Well, one, uh, one point I would do want to make, being a constitutional uh, scholar and respecter, Article 1, Section 10 says that no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. Yeah, and what a shame. How, did, a shame. how, 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 how do we deviate from that? I don't get that. It's right there in, in bold writing. Would you know, Adam? That is a good question. Let me give you another indirect answer. The good news is that the founding fathers, when we talk about, and, and to a certain extent the founding mothers, all of their correspondence has been digitized. And I have links on my website under the resources tab or references tab, um, so or bibliography tab, I can use all those names, where you can go in these websites from the National Archives and I give you the links. And you can put in whatever subject you want to search uh, and then give the name of the founding father or mother that you want to see what they've said on that subject. And it's so easy now with the Internet to do research. So you, again, you've piqued my interest on uh, the Cuba connection, but... Um, you're asking monetary policy questions, and I want to be careful not to go outside of my field of, uh, of historical interest because I don't pretend to be an expert on, uh, on uh, you know, where we are. How well, we you're so you're sure the hell are impressing us. Yeah, and you definitely, <laughs> but you definitely have to come back to Manny on the connection between the Spanish colonial government in Cuba and uh, supporting the American Revolution, which I think they did, and they specifically supported the French squadron. And the Spanish squadron in the Caribbean. So that, well, there's a uh, famous story. Let me elaborate yeah, on the story for him. There's a famous there's a famous story between uh, June of 1780 and August of 1780, where ships uh, commandeered by Admiral de Grassi leave France for Hispaniola, get rejected by this, the French and Hispaniola, saying, "Are you kidding me? Are we you know we want to chop the king's head off, not fund his war in America." But go to the next island, he does, he brings these 38 ships, he mistakens the Havana Harbor for the uh, uh, a shallow river called Yumuri, where there was a, what he thought was a mutiny, because his ships were anchored offshore, he sent men to the, to the coast, they didn't return for 15 days, and apparently the word got out, kind of like a Paul, uh, Paul Revere type, God knows how, but... Uh, they told him, "Look, you're you're wrong. You're not you're not in the Havana Harbor. You're in Yumuri." And these guys, when they came back to to the boats, because they they were they were were looking for them, they 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 came back with emeralds, diamonds, gold coins, uh, brand new clothing. Um, and these women, they were called the, the the women of Matanzas, which is a town, a small yeah, town. town. Uh, he uh, Ed has been in that town. I was born here in the states, but anyway, uh, these parents, the this was like the capital of the seamstresses mm -hmm. of the royals of Spain. And guess what? They wanted to be inseminated by Frenchmen. Oh, yes, and that's the story. So they're the ones who led the French to the Havana Harbor. Took another. A day or so to get to Havana, and what it was awaiting for them, for what eventually uh, was the funding of Yorktown, was 500,000 pounds of gold and silver boarded on these ships, and they say it was in record time, it was in uh, six hours, which might be folklore at this point, but those were the ships that left for the ba the eventual Battle of the Chesapeake, surprising right. the British out of the James the, River. The French uh, ships kept, the, kept Cornwallis from being evacuated or supplied at Yorktown. That's right. He was bottled up by the grass. Right. And uh, that's where, at Yorktown, Hamilton leads the charge. Right. Uh, personally leads the charge. Wow, Hamilton, that's a, yeah. that's a nice part there of the were, story. There were two little forts in front of the British lines, 
and the night before the final attack, they had to be taken with bayonets and swords only, without firing a shot. Yeah, in so the night. The, the Americans took one, and the other was taken by the French, and Hamilton, personally, with a sword and with scaling ladders, led the American troops. Oh, so, fantastic. I, I, I'm really happy yeah. to hear that, that part of the story, because the statue of the gentleman who uh, secured the Mississippi River throughout this time in order to supply cannonballs of gunpowder was a gentleman by the name of Bernardo Galvez. And lo and behold, his statue is in the north entrance of the Department of State. In the late 70s, the king had this... uh king of Spain? Yeah, yeah, I believe Nixon approved uh, the statue being placed there. And there he stands, and uh, he's surrounded by yeah. McDonald's yeah. and Burger King wrappers. Adam, you're <laughs> going to have to research the uh, Cuban colonial connection to the American Revolution. Well, Mr. Pollock... Well, done, gentlemen. Yeah, it's really exciting because Bernardo Galvez, in the, apparently one of the first Congresses, if not the first, uh, he asked for the release of Pollock from a Cuban jail. Pay his debts, please, because if not, he's going to rot in jail in Cuba, and he's a, he's and, an American and, hero. And the, the great city of Galveston, Texas. Yes, is named, is after, named after this gentleman, Bernardo Galvez. That's where you get Galveston, Texas from. So There's we, something you can explore for the next. And, and it's all tied to the, the, you know, the X factor to the War of Independence. Yep. Uh, I bet you didn't know that. Uh, well, thank you for telling me. Well, we got to teach you. We got to teach you a little bit after you've taught us so yeah, much. That, yeah, that's really good. That that would be a really. But but it's interesting. You mentioned Paul Revere with an analogy, um, and I'd love to talk to you about how Paul Revere connects to the suffix resolves, uh, which is another story about a convention. <laughs> Wow. That? Well, you want to go there? Or you, or, uh, or, yeah, let's go no. there. Why not? This is radio. Everything's possible. Go for it. Okay. So we talked about constitutional conventions. There's the Annapolis Convention. Then you had Franklin, which was the Albany Convention. Uh, but what about the suffix resolves? So go to the website, Statutes and Stories, and read about the suffix resolves. But it's an amazing story. So let me try to do it justice in three minutes. Okay. Long story short, you know the story about how we had the Boston Tea Party, 1774. And we know what happens in the Boston Tea Party. Mm -hmm. The British did not act favorably after their tea was thrown in the harbor because uh, that, a lot of that was money that the British government needed, and there's a long story about the Boston Tea Party and the economics. But um, Boston, the, the British start deciding that they're going to crack down on Massachusetts, all the Sons of Liberty, these radicals. So they pass four laws, and they're called the intangible, they're called the intolerable acts, or they're called the coercive acts, depending on who you ask and where you were living. Yeah, I, remember, I recall them in school as the intolerable acts. That's right. And the kids, my kids, they're learning about this in their civics class. And we can talk about conventions and what they learn in school. But one of those four intolerable acts was the Massachusetts Government Act. So, again, the Massachusetts Government Act, which shuts down Massachusetts government. They shut down the legislature. And they said you can't have, you can't have meetings uh, by the legislature anymore in Massachusetts because you guys, until you pay back the cost of the tea. So they also shut down Boston Harbor, so they're doing an embargo around Boston. They're really trying to suppress Boston to send a message to all the colonies, do not be a Boston, otherwise we're going to come down hard on you like we're doing to Boston. So what does Suffolk County do? So because the British had said you can't have these commission meetings or you can't have these legislative meetings, they decide instead to have a meeting in Milton, Massachusetts, which was the town close to Boston because they couldn't meet in Boston anymore. And the 19... 19 towns in Suffolk County, that's where it gets the name, the Suffolk Resolve. 19 towns meet on September 9th in Milton, and they come up unanimously, and let's talk about what unanimous means and why that might be important, but they unanimously write the Suffolk's Resolves, which are 19 resolutions 
talking about what we need to do to unite and oppose the British. And uh, what's the point? The point is, let's go to Paul Revere now, that um, Paul Revere, because the Continental Congress was meeting, he was at the meeting in Milton in 1774, September 9th, and he gets on his horse, and he drives from Milton, Massachusetts, all the way to where the Continental Congress was meeting, which was in, I believe, Philadelphia. He does that in five days, pretty much nonstop. And we could talk about how long does it take you on a horse to get from Milton, Massachusetts, all the way to Philadelphia. In the he same horse? At the beginning of the Continental Congress. Yep. And uh, John Adams describes the Continental Congress reads through that resolution, and they unanimously decide to support Suffolk County, which is where Boston was based. And uh, there's a wonderful language in Article 19, I'm sorry, it's Resolve 18, Resolve 18 of the Suffolk's Resolves, uh, and this was written, by the way, by Dr. They got his, his name right. This is Dr. Warren. And Dr. Warren was one of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty. He was killed at Bunker Hill. But Dr. Warren, working with Sam Adams and John Adams and all the Adams family and the other leaders of the, of the Sons of Liberty, uh, is able, when that, when that very powerful suffix resolves, makes it to, to the, the, the folks meeting in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, this, this shows that the colonies are going to unite with Boston. They're going to oppose the British. They're not going to get picked off. And Britain's efforts to suppress Massachusetts backfires. Wow, um, but didn't uh, didn't John Adams represent the British in the in the Boston Tea Party originally? In the massacre, in the Boston massacre, he represented uh, the British soldiers. No, uh, who did he represent? I don't know. I'm asking Adam because he would know. I thought Adams had uh, represented. He realized that his client sucked, and he joined the forces the of Liberty. Letter, not the not the, the massacre, party. not the Tea Party right. itself. Uh, please tell us, Adam. I don't know for sure. But basically uh, <laughs> what's happening is the British have lots of troops in Massachusetts. Yeah. This is before the Coercive Act, so this is probably 1770s when the Boston Massacre happens. And here's a little aside. Uh, the, the individual who did the famous engraving of the shooting at the Boston Massacre was actually Paul Revere was right. an engraver. He was a silversmith engraver. Right. And his political cartoon or his, his engraving of the Boston Massacre uh, was used to inflame the colonists to, to revolt against the British and not to buy British tea and to not buy British goods. Uh, but that was earlier in 1770. And to your point, the, uh, you know, the, the massacre was really just a handful of people getting shot. So it was used as, as a way to you know, raise all kinds of opposition to the British. But uh, some of the soldiers were not responsible. And Adams, to his credit, and it wasn't popular for him to do it, but John Adams, to his credit, represented, as you said, uh, at least one of the soldiers at the Boston Massacre. That it was. Oh, okay, okay yeah. clarified. Okay, cool. And this is the same John Adams that, as president, signed the Alien and Sedition Acts. There you go. So there are lots of. Uh, let's say, That's insane. That's just beyond duplicity. I mean, the, the human being is is well, so is is so in battle with itself. Oh my God! To this day. <laughs> okay. So now the the next issue is what what can we what what can be said of why is it that we were able to get up and running after the coinage act? What is it that that changed in the economy? of our new nation that allow us to get public credit. It gave gave us a stable currency based on silver and gold, mostly silver from Mexico. That was, I think that was the, what the coinage act was that it created uh, a a definition, silver backed U.S. dollar. And that was a key to uh, prosperity. It was a key to prosperity everywhere. It was a key to prosperity in Germany after World War II. So what concessions did we give 
New Spain, which we was Mexico. Well, how do you get the gold and the silver? Well, you you buy it. You you just, well, would you buy it with what? You you do something productive and you take it down and you sell it. Okay, so well, we would. So that would be a we cool. That would be for another we, day. We had, uh, so it would be it would uh, be agricultural cotton. We had uh, uh, implements, tools, tobacco. Yeah, all sorts of things. The colonies were very busy places generally. Oh, so so that's how we got our gold Absolutely. and silver. Enough yeah. to to set up a war chest. Absolutely. The federal government eventually got up enough and the banks, individual banks I think issued currency in those days as long as it was backed by gold or silver, usually silver. Do you is this ring a bell with you, Adam? If you want to talk about coins, let me give you more background. From what I know, and I, I posted about the Coinage Act of 1792. Yep. So uh, a couple quick observations. They didn't have the, the gold and the silver in the quantities that they needed. Right. So it took time for them to do it, which is why they were so reliant, as you said earlier, on the Spanish gold and Spanish silver and, and the other European countries. So it took time for them to do it. But uh, the other point is, just to tell you, uh, the, if you read the Coinage Act, there was a death penalty for the people working in the U.S. Mint, which started slow, and it started in Philadelphia, because that's where the capital was at the time, while they were right. building Washington, D.C., made it a capital offense for you to debase the coinage that we were right. making, so they took it very seriously. And Hamilton understood that a lot of people, we didn't have currency, you were using the realis, the Spanish dollars, you had to cut them into eight pieces, right. pieces of eight, and uh, a lot of people didn't have access to money, they bartered. And Hamilton realized, because he was a capitalist, and he was a financial genius, uh, and, uh, you know, if you go to the website, I, I give you some of the books that he cites and the reports that he presents to Congress as the Secretary of Treasury, reports that he's writing basically by himself, which are hundreds of pages long when you look at some of these. Yeah, and Felton pens and... Uh, and yep. the, yeah, he was a very uh, learned man. A learned well, man. Among the things that Hamilton realizes is that by introducing a decimal system of using low-denomination coins, as opposed to the crazy British guineas right. and... Uh, uh, you, know, the, you know what a far thing is, guys? Yeah, right, yeah. No, even, I don't. Even the British got rid of that. It took them until the 1970s before they went to a decimalization system. So right. the far thing back then was a fourth of a penny. And I, I collect coins also, so I have a British farthing from 1776, oh. which could have been held by George Washington. That's a fourth of a penny. But uh, what, what's the point? The point and you could actually, uh, you could actually buy something with that. You couldn't even pick your nose in with those that. Days. <laughs> in those days, it was real money—a fourth of a penny. Go figure. But these were copper coins that we were putting together for the, for the common person to be able, to, instead of the barter, to actually use reliable currency. Now, wasn't the ocho reales España difficult to to actually? Uh, cut in half and cut in pieces. Wasn't it famous for breaking tools and and because it was very hard uh, metal. Silver, yeah. Yeah, hard silver because of its purity. Or was that is that folklore as well? Because that's what I heard. That the reason why I got its name was because you couldn't chop it into eights, into eight pieces like that. Or maybe originally yes, but then eventually no. Uh, not that it matters. But continue with your story. Right, so we can go into as much detail as you want about about coinage, but and that gets to the debasing issue. That if you're cutting your piece of gold coin into eight pieces, do you think you're going to cut them evenly? You're going to give people smaller pieces right. to keep the pieces that you're keeping larger. So these are all the issues that you know, he's addressing when when Hamilton creates the U.S. Mint and the lower denomination coins. I'm going to give you just some statistics on what he accomplishes as Treasury Secretary. There was approximately, and we could talk about the assumption of debt if you want to go into that, but there was state debt and then there was the federal debt from the Continental Congress, and he decides as Treasury Secretary in this voluminous report that he writes to Congress 
and Congress gives him basically a month or so, and uh, he writes this report that knocks their socks off because he's so detailed with all the, all the research that he does and all the reading that he does. Uh, so long story short, he wants to take on the state debt. He wants to take on the federal debt. And uh, why would he want to take on state debt? Could you imagine the federal government taking on other debts? We could talk about that. Yeah. He realizes that if you put skin in the game, if you have the states now become stakeholders in the federal government. And remember how the continental dollar was trading for pennies on what, what it was worth. Right. Uh, so let me give you some of the numbers. So the government borrowed $19 million from the Bank of New York, which he had founded, and the Bank of North America. He gets a temporary loan for $19 million. And as we pointed out earlier, the Bank of England was using governmental bonds, which were trading freely, uh, which Hamilton thought was a national blessing. And we could talk about that quote from Hamilton, how the debt could be used as an asset, as a national blessing, as a tool. Uh, But as a result of Hamilton's financial program and sound financial policies, uh, and by the way, that essay that he wrote was a 15,000-word essay. So here me give you some numbers about uh, what he accomplishes. Real quickly, and I'm flipping here. That's no, really, he, that's really right. impressive. A national debt in moderation is a national asset. In moderation, supported with taxes, because you have to be able to pay it off. Right. Food and taxation. So uh, the, the total debt that they take from the states and the federal government was $80 million at the time, but they're only getting taxes of $4.4 million. So they've got a debt of $80 million. They're taking taxes of $4.4 million. He gets that $19 million loan. He starts paying it off with interest on a sound, stretched-out, prudent basis. And uh, the Senate agreed to his proposals, et cetera. And uh, the government securities, the value of the bonds that we issued, tripled in value yep. thanks to the assurance that it would be properly funded, handing America $30 million in capitalization because of the program he put in place. Yep, yep, yep. He was a real genius. Well, and the money was uh, used for what? Uh, 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 building the government's well, infrastructure or just the military? Yeah, naval uh, ships they had to build to protect us from the Muslim jihadists in North Africa. So that's used for all kinds of things, including when you talk about infrastructure, building lighthouses, right. building postal roads, paying salaries for the military, right? paying the pensions. And I'll give you some more examples. Right. And here's a trivia question because I posted about it on the website. What do you think the first federal labor law was? And when do you think the first federal labor Tell me it wasn't minimum wage. <laughs> no, no, it was uh, probably for the soldiers. Okay, that, that's a good guess, and that's what I would have guessed. But uh, remember, what, what federal authority, what does Congress have? What can they regulate? Customs. Yeah, if you had a strict interpretation of... Uh, yeah, so it was uh, tariffs. Customs. You, you can, of course, interstate commerce. There's no dispute. You can, you can regulate interstate commerce. But uh, one of the problems was sailors. Uh, were being, and I'll use careful language here, but sailors weren't being paid what they were required to be paid. If you're on the ship for a year, you know, it's the end of your contract, and you leave the ship, and they're not paying the sailors. Mm-hmm. And you realize you needed to have a merchant marine. You needed to have reliable sailors. So the first federal labor law, which was in the late 1790s, provided contract protection for the sailors. And we could go into details about how those contracts worked. But um, they also started building in the late 1790s marine hospitals because they didn't want yellow fever to spread. Uh, and when the soldiers or the sailors come in from exotic ports and other locations, they realize that... Yeah, that's how you see that. That, that it reappears. They're using money to build federal or naval hospitals for not soldiers only, but also for sailors. Well, you just connected a terrific dot because that, that language appears in the 
uh, the lease at Guantanamo, there's a lease that says that if Cuba cannot control its waterborne diseases, the United States has the right to eminent domain Guantanamo Bay in, uh, to protect the public health interests of the southern ports of the United States. Yeah. And it specifically mentions the waterborne diseases, yellow fever, dengue, and cholera. Yeah. If you want to know that law, which should go to statutesandstories.com, is 1798. That's the Act for Relief of Sick and Disabled Seamen, which was what I'll call the first federal health insurance program. And, um, and so what are they using the money for? Hamilton wanted to spend money because he realized at least it was initially stimulative uh, to get the ducks in a row to have a stable, secure, you know, this experiment in democracy. He wanted it to work. So it was yeah. actually contaminated sperm? Is that what you said? No, no, no. Is, I, I said he wanted the... the no, but you said it was... Uh, to work. Oh, but you said what was... Uh, no, no, I, I understand that. But before you said the statement of... Was it venereal? Oh, you're talking about the first public health law. Yellow, yellow fever. Yellow fever, but it was nothing that had to do with venereal diseases no, or anything no. like that. Oh, they didn't have that back then. They didn't have that back then. <laughs> okay. I have to ask my father, who's a doctor, a okay. retired physician. <laughs> uh, some of these outbreaks were so bad, they had to shut right. down Congress and get out of, get out of um, I think it was Philadelphia. They get out of Philadelphia right. because of the, uh, you know, some of these diseases. So they were taking prudent and, uh, you know, I'll be careful how to describe them, but they, they were, you know, spending some of this money that they had. And most importantly, by putting the government's house in order, we were able to do the biggest, best land deal in the history of the world, which we mentioned before, which is the Louisiana, Louisiana Purchase, Purchase, which is the irony that Jefferson has to thank Hamilton uh, for being able to purchase from France the, the land deal of a, of a millennium. Absolutely. That pretty that much uh, changed it all. I mean, that started the real... And they were able to do that because the U.S. had good credit. Exactly right. Well, that's well, that that's is something I remember now. Yeah, well, I mean, so in other words, if we didn't purchase that, then we would have been well, charged well, for well, all goods up yeah, to the Mississippi right. River. We wouldn't have New Orleans. Yeah. We wouldn't have New Orleans. Therefore, we would have been severely paying some some serious well, import Midwest tax. Agricultural exports would have had to go through. Oh, plus that. exports, correct. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. Okay, so what other pivotal point that uh, Ed's got something going on in his head here? Um, there's something you want to ask as it pertains to. We got to keep on going the in. in states. Well, no, that's uh, you're not you're you're, uh, you're prepared to tell us what uh, Madison said in his notes about the convention of states. Okay, so I know that. So one of the subjects that's near and dear to your heart. Yeah, <laughs> Article Five. Another story. So right. here, and it's mentioned by the way in, in some of the handbooks about the state conventions, but it doesn't go into the detail that I'm going to give you. So. Here we're talking about Article 5, and maybe it takes a moment to give people some background. And this is in my daughter's civics book. But there are two ways to propose a constitutional amendment, and there are two ways to ratify a constitutional amendment. So originally, Article 5 only had the one way, or the door one, to propose an amendment, which is Congress proposing an amendment. And who, and that's the question I'm asking, who of the founding fathers on basically the last day of the Constitutional Convention? They were there for four months. You know, it's hot. They want to get home and they get out of there. Uh, so they're going through the final version of the Constitution, taking miscellaneous amendments. And uh, here's, here's the name. So this is, let me get back to my notes. So I give proper credit. George Mason. So George Mason on September 5th. I'm sorry, September 15, 1787, as they're reading through Article 5, 
And uh, this is what he said. Mason says, no amendments of proper kind would ever be obtained by the people if government should become oppressive, as he verily believed would be the case. And this is coming from Madison's note, because Madison was the note taker, was the primary note taker at the Constitutional Convention. And go to statutesandstories.com if you want to read. I've got links to that's all these primary sources. So again, Mason is saying if all we, the only way we can amend the Constitution is if Congress proposes an amendment. He says, why would they? You know, if they're oppressive, they're not going to agree to amendments. Right. So Morris and talking about how to pronounce his name, but I think it's uh, Grosvenor Morris right. and Eldridge Jerry make a motion uh, to allow two-thirds of the states in conventions uh, to propose amendments. So that's where this whole idea comes from. It's basically on the last day of the Constitutional Convention, September 15th. Right. And uh, then Madison, and you can read what Madison says, Madison does not see why Congress would not be much bound. So you know, he's saying, I don't think it should be a problem. It can certainly go through Congress. Uh, but he had no objection, and I could read to you what his, his, uh, his description is. I'll, I'll save the time. But basically, that motion, which was made by Jerry and Morris to support Mason's proposal to allow conventions, passed NEMCON. That's the Latin NEMCON, which no, con- no, contri- no contradicting, no opposition. Amazing. That passed on the last day, basically, of the Constitutional Convention. Yeah. So that gives you the ability to have state conventions. And as, as we know, it's never been done that way. It's always been done by Congress on door number one, making right. the proposals. Uh, it's never been done through state conventions before. Well, well Mason uh, had a good point, and he is considered a patriot. I'm not sure that he approved of the Constitution, but uh, he certainly required that the Bill of Rights be added. But this is a good point, because, you know, if Congress is tyrannical, then they're not going to call a convention. So what, what we're working on is trying to have a convention called by action of two-thirds of the states. Uh, which well, which we've accomplished 12 so far. Well, we, we're up to 12, and we'll, we're going to have, uh, in January, we're going to have the president of the Convention of States Project talk about our legislative strategy for the coming year. But that's interesting. And, you know, the, the Constitution was signed on September 17th, so it was right at the last minute that this was addressed, and I guess nobody objected. Good thing that Mason uh, brought it up. Mason brings it up, and you're exactly right. Mason does not sign the Constitution because he wanted the Bill of Rights. And that gets to the point, and you guys were talking about this earlier in the last hour, about do you want debate? And this gets to the strategy of how you do a convention. Do you want a give and take? We could talk about the Constitutional Convention, how it was all about compromises. Right. But the, do you want give and take, or do you want it to be all laid out, and then um, you know, it, uh, it just follows through uh, you know, with formalities? So well, I think, yeah. I think that my point was this, that there's one thing we can mimic— and I've said this before on this show, it's one thing that we could mimic is the screaming and yelling in debate of the House of Commons in London yeah, because... But that's supposed to be orchestrated. Well, you know, that was how the person responded to me. It was it Nadelson himself. Yeah, he said that Nadelson it was all staged. That, yeah. Well, I don't... I, I believe there's something to gain even if it were staged. I don't believe it, it is mm-hmm. that staged. I'm sure people know what they're, each other are going to say because of rebuttals. And also, if you got someone's back... The person you're asking for support obviously got to explain to him what I'm about to tell the prime minister today. So in that regard, it's staged. But being able to uh, call out each other and have everybody sitting there, you pretty much find out who your friends and your enemies are in public and then find out who your friends and enemy are in private. And our government right now is disgustingly absent. I mean, you look on C-SPAN and I see a, a lot of people talking to nobody. Sorry, I see very few people talking to nobody. Right. And there's no one sitting in well, there. All the legislators in Congress are doing the important thing, which is raising money for their next election. Yes, and I find that really 
uh, uh, absurd that we are not talking about that. And thank God for cable TV because you can see that it's every day that the place is empty. Yeah. There's only young kids sitting there around the uh, recorder. The, the, the other thing to consider is that Eldridge Gary is from uh, Massachusetts, and he is the guy who invented gerrymandering by drawing districts to, in effect, the legislators select their voters. And so that's another factor that people didn't realize when the Constitution was drafted how how heavy partisanship was going to develop. They didn't expect, they called them factions, different interest groups. I don't think they expected partisanship to grow up, but it did in the 1790s. It was very partisan. The election of 1800 was very contested, and uh, that's the way we, it's been ever since. Well, uh, uh, Jackass Jackson. I mean, that uh, that's how Jackson, the, Andrew Jackson. Yeah, right. his uh, his first election, he yep. loses after having the majority of the three candidates. Yeah, and in the case of the election of 1860, the losers declared war on the Union. Absolutely. So. <laughs> and then you had to have three constitutional amendments to get them to and appointed se- and appointed senators and, in order to pass and 400 union dead union soldiers 400,000 uh, 400,000 dead union soldiers yep. well we've got nine more minutes uh what uh, issue would you like the most talk about adam and can we get you to do this uh on a regular basis um yeah. because i think our audience they can only get it here on blink it's, radio especially if you if you research the cuba connection I will definitely research the Cuba connection. But let me, and I wanted to mention this earlier. Or maybe you can come into the studio and do this with us live. What I would like to do before I forget, before we run out of time, is uh, there are two reasons historically why today is an important day. One of which is I want to just pay some respect to the Bush family, because mm-hmm. uh, I believe that uh, you know, he is a true American patriot, and uh, you know we all come together when we lose a president. So I want to make sure that we, uh, if you haven't already, pay respect to, to the Bush family. Yeah. Uh, and also today is Hanukkah, so I want to wish uh, Hanukkah <laughs> blessings to everyone who is listening tonight uh, with candles burning in the background. Well, yeah. So well, well long live yeah. the, the kingdom happy, of David, that's for sure. And without a Hanukkah, there would have been no Christmas. <laughs> that is very true. Um, let me talk to you real quickly about Franklin. We, we talked about Franklin in 1754, but uh, there's a very famous metaphor that he uses or an image that he paints on the last day. As you mentioned, the, the September 15th is when the amendment was made to add the ability to have conventions propose amendments. So on the last day, which is the day it's signed, uh, I think it was the last day, uh, you know, Franklin, who was the oldest, he's 81 years old, and Hamilton is 30. Benjamin Franklin is 81 years old. Uh, he can't even walk very well. They're carrying him along in stretchers. Um, so what did he say in his closing speech? Because he, he had wisdom. And, and I think you need delegates, if you do a convention, uh, who are going to listen and who has, have wisdom. And that gets to the point about, and I'll go back to Franklin, uh, do you want to give and take where people at the end can compromise and be happy with the product? And what are the goals? And I'd love to spend time with you talking about my questions about the process of doing a convention. But uh, what does Franklin say at the end of the Constitutional Convention, which I think was on September 17th, uh, the day that it gets signed? And he, he points out that he had been looking at the chair where Washington was sitting, and engraved in the chair where Washington, who was the president of the, of the, of the convention, uh, there was a, a mural of a, or at least an engraving of the sun. Uh, and you can't tell, artist, is the sun setting or is the sun rising? So Franklin points out that artist, you know, how do you know if it's a setting sun or a rising sun? And he says, I'm convinced. And he has a wonderful soliloquy where he talks about, um, you know, he wasn't originally happy. He's not happy with all the provisions. But ultimately, he thinks that it's the best that can be made. Uh, and we can talk about the compromise. But he says, I'm convinced that it is a rising sun on our country. And that gets to the point of it. What's the purpose of a convention? 
Uh, is it to have a, a rising sun? Is it to have a sun that people, are we going to be a shining sea on a hill that people can look to and that uh, are going to be proud of? And the delicate balances that you have in the Constitution. And uh, to make sure that uh, the people who leave and the people who have to ratify, because don't forget, we talked about door one, is how you propose it, but then it has to be adopted by three quarters. And there was also an amendment to get rid of the three-quarter requirement. That's a very heavy lift to get three-quarters of the states. That's 38 states you need to get. So it's 34, I believe, in yep. order to propose it. Yep. But it's 38 states to ratify it to get the three-quarters. So how do you make it easier so that uh, – and is it going to be a bipartisan – we could talk about this – or is it a nonpartisan? I would refer to our Constitution as a, as a bipartisan jewel. It's a crown. Well, I believe it's a negative document. It's a list of limitations on government uh, against its people, and people think for some reason government somehow has rights. It has none. We, we could talk about uh, the first ten amendments and what the ninth and tenth amendment do, uh, power reserved to the people and to the states. That's the ninth and tenth amendment, and the restrictions on federal power. So I absolutely would love to have that conversation with you. I'm, I'm just making the point that, you know, what are the goals of a convention? And uh, don't forget, if you squeak it through two-thirds, you still need to get it ratified. And that, you know, I think gets back to Hamilton's point earlier, that you know, he, he spent nine years organizing a convention, and then he had a plan after the convention uh, to get the country together to move forward. So, you know, Great, incredible vision. Yeah, there's some well, people... What happens after? Yeah. What's the day after? And, uh, you know, how, how do you make sure it's done in a way, uh, and, you know, we can have that conversation that, uh, you know, gets everyone's skin in the game, then strengthens the country, promotes democracy, uh, that's politically and economically feasible, uh, and, uh, you, know, you know, does it support our system of checks and balances? Well, Adam, I think those are very good points. And one, one approach, some people would say that America today could not write a new constitution. But I would say we don't need to, we can't, we cannot, like, we cannot build a new interstate highway system because there are too many laws and regulations and zoning and land use. But I think what the Convention of States project is trying to do is to tinker in two or three places. And I think we had a good discussion about, you know, how that tinkering would work, whether, you know, term limits, balanced budgets here and there, limiting federal jurisdiction, repealing the 17th Amendment, having to... Uh, state legislatures get back in the game. So I think that's the scope of what we're, th we're talking about in the Convention of States project, not rewriting the whole Constitution, which I think I'm sure we could not do, but maybe tinker around the edges in a few places so that the Constitution becomes more responsive to the citizens. Well, the applications themselves that we are using to get to the 12 pretty much are supposed to be identical in nature. They can deviate a little bit in terms of language, but it's pretty much with the same goal in mind so that we have to stay within the curbing of the the, the purview has to be with a limiting federal power. Right. And there's some issues that I have with that language because I can see a, I can see states that don't sign on but do attend the convention creating havoc well, in there to sabotage it. Even a state like California, which is very liberal, they might want to limit federal power because they're seeing when they don't control the federal government, it, they're, they're in litigation with the federal government all the time today just like Texas was when there was a Democrat administration. So I think if we, if, if the Convention of States advocates pitch it right, I think even, even the liberal states, the progressive states that want a more active government might come to the view, and I think people are, were coming to this already, that we, you know, we want to be left alone by the federal government to do things. If we want to be more progressive in California than, say, Texas or Florida or Georgia or Tennessee, 
then we want to be left alone to do it. And that's how the argument for a convention of states with limited limited uh, objectives could get done. So the the final question would be, Adam, are you up to coming into our studio? Yeah, are uh, you in the Miami area? Oh, I'm, I'm in Broward, and oh. uh, we have to talk offline. Can I kind of give a couple of pitches real quick? Sure. sure. So I'm going to be on December 16th uh, at the Hollywood Library, the Hollywood Library Friends. Um, you know, it's the biggest library group in Broward County, and uh, we, we get sometimes, uh, the last time I spoke about, uh, full of capacity. Uh, so I'll be speaking about Hamilton on December 16th. Uh, I'll be at Nova Southeastern, and we're doing a display of my book collection, uh, which will be in March, from March 18th to April 15th at Nova Southeastern University in their gallery that they have. Right. And January 22nd, I'll be speaking to a Hadassah group for my Hadassah friends who are listening. So uh, long story short, short with, uh, with Hamilton coming to, to uh, Broward, uh, with uh, lots of people loving American history and uh, wanting to get their hands and their fingers deep in, in the wonderful stories of what America is all about and how to make it better, uh, there's just a lot going on. And yeah. uh, I, I had not previously uh, participated in, in radio, but it was an honor and a privilege for me, gentlemen. Great. Thank well, you it's, very it, much. It's, it's really a, a pleasure to have you, and, and the honor is ours, quite frankly, because... Uh, we have a lot of opinions here, but it's nice to have opinions with uh, more fact-based opinions yep, yep. than just uh, rhetoric. I think what's uh, what you basically what you told us today that the key to saving America is not a key at all. It seems to be a combination and a padlock, and you have to be able to connect a series of events that went right and went wrong for us to stay clear of what went wrong and fix the country. The question is, can we ever have? Uh, consensus today. There's nobody wants to admit when they're wrong, and when you well, can't admit when you're wrong. Maybe I think some of the progressives, progressive states, will realize it's in their interest to limit the power of the federal government. That is the key yeah. point that I think maybe left and right can agree on. Okay, but the right, in saying that they wanted smaller government, low taxes, that that old mantra created the largest department in the in the federal government's history the department of homeland security so you know i'm a right i'm a right i'm a conservative and i acknowledge that our party yep. as much as they trumped george w bush and excuse the pun as long as much as they trumped small government and low taxes they created a very very large yep. homeland security department yep. so i'm really annoyed because we were broke then, now we're even broke now, paying yeah, for all that payroll. Just, so uh, it's refreshing to be able to go back in time and, and not be in forward in time with Adam. Uh, uh, I'm hoping that uh, we can have you call back in. I mean, uh, now that we know that you're in Broward, it'll probably have to be in... Um, uh, yeah, Broward County. At least you got rid of your superintendent of elections, but you still got a sheriff and a uh, superintendent of schools that's uh, pretty dangerous. Well, we're going to go to a song, and we're going to call you Adam the Top Gun, and you uh, you brought us through the danger zone, which was the the early days of colonial America. So thank you very much, and I hope we can get you back soon. Thank you. Everybody be well. Thank you. Take care. So here we go. This is the end of the Concrete Conservative Show. Quite exciting. Two callers, one hour of peace, no commercial breaks. Tell me that Blink Radio... Manny is the commercial break. I am the commercial break. My levity and my certainty is it makes the glue stick. Okay, Ed? You know what I mean? Yeah. So stay free, my friends. Right. It's time to go to the, uh, the danger zone. Thank you all. Stay free. <laughs>